that was your cue. That was, that was, that was kind. That was very good. Hello, hello online. Hello Cambridge and Leicester. Um, and hello you lot. Good to see you. Good to be here. Um, in the wellbeing video, uh, just a disclaimer, that was not my kitchen. Um, when you look at it and you realise, gosh, that's very stunning. Miriam's done very well abroad. Um, I borrowed that house. <laughs> Don't be silly. Student mission, OK? Think about it. That's not my kitchen, is it? <laughs> not to worry. Um, it is really good to be with you all today. And even just um, to have uh, my daughter and one of my best friend's kids running around at the front and thinking about generationally how you guys really do so well at representing what it means to be the family of God. And even uh, Pastor Gallia telling me uh, just how long she's been here and just being able to spot people in the room that prayed for her as a teenager. And now she's one of the leaders here. And you just think, yes, come on, church. Like, you know, from birth till death in every generation, we want our, um, our stories of faith to be knit together in the family of God. Uh, that's why we're passionate at Fusion about the young adult bit, about making sure your teenagers leave home and continue to find home in the family and the people of God, wherever they end up. So it is a joy to see that um, right now, face to face, and to get another glimpse, another taste of what is possible in the kingdom of God. So yeah, praise God uh, for this community, and thank you for having me. Um, I'm delighted to be able to tell you that I got to uh, decide which bit of this uh, series to speak on, and, um, and firmly went for the one called Miriam, because... Um, <laughs> Um, for no particular reason, I don't know, nothing, uh, no, I'm just very humble as a person, so it was a surprise, it was a surprise to find the Holy Spirit particularly nudged me towards my namesake, um, just shocking. Um, uh, Miriam's, Miriam's amazing, not me, but the first one. Uh, she, um, she rose out of uh, an oppressed people and ended up actually helping lead uh, her people into freedom, uh, out of slavery and into the promised land through the wilderness, uh, alongside two very key leaders that you'll also know the names of, Moses and Aaron. And um, she also says a couple things that get her into trouble and gets leprosy for it. So, you know, there's swings around about some Miriam. She's like an incredible leader, also makes a very inappropriate joke and gets a skin disease. So... <clears throat> Did my mum and dad name me after her for any reason? I don't know. Um, the thing is, as I was going to speak on Miriam today, as soon as I went into Exodus 1 and 2 and kind of began this Exodus narrative, I realised, actually, very quickly, I spotted I couldn't really speak on Miriam. It's not that I won't mention her. There are some things that we can learn from Miriam in the, in the first couple of chapters. But there are so many phenomenal women that do phenomenal things that help even the story of God come to pass. For the Exodus to even happen, Exodus 1 and 2 um, is vital. That I, I just stumbled into these stories of these women and thought, oh, hold on, that's the talk. That's, that's what we want to notice. Some of these people that potentially stay quite anonymous in our Sunday school teachings and the pictures we get to colour in where we do the dramatic scenes like the parting of the Red Sea and things like that. Actually, none of that happens if these women don't fear God and then step into obedience and courage with him. And so um, we'll do a little bit on Miriam, but we won't really, because actually there's so much more to say from the people that we know less about later on. If you've got your Bibles uh, with you, you might want to turn to Exodus chapter one. It's also going to be on the screen um, or on your phones. And um, I'm actually going to read to you uh, this bit of the narrative because it tells like a story. It's quite easy to find, um, to just enter into that story. So uh, Exodus chapter one, we'll start there and we'll start at verse 15, and we're going to be introduced to some of the most ordinary and courageous women that you're going to come across in Scripture. I wonder whether you've heard of them before. Verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose, name were, who, whose names were Shifra and Puyah, 
when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous, they give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. It's actually quite a dramatic and serious start to the Exodus narrative. It's really interesting because at the very start of Exodus, you get this long list of, of male names and it's kind of God's people, the lineage of kind of God's people and they name all the boys, essentially. And then you've got a, a male leader, the, the Pharaoh, who is in, in his mind and everyone else's mind, God. And uh, he also sets the tone in the narrative. And uh, you've got all these names of all these blokes and then you've got all these guys wielding power and, and honestly speaking, genocide. And yet it is women that are undermining the works of the enemy and weaving together the story of God. The male line gets named, but the women are the ones that actually see that that line continues. And we want, I want to start by actually talking a little bit about names. Because, as I said, at the start of the, start of the book, you get lots of names of the guys. And it is very significant in the Bible to be named. Lots of people are in, in the kind of whole sweep of scripture, but to get your name in there means something. It is extra significant to have women named in the Bible. That's for a lot of reasons, partly due to the fact that all of society was led by the blokes. Also, the stories were wrote, written by the boys. And so to get your name as a woman in a story when it, you didn't get to tell that story, you didn't get to write that down, and you weren't in any way leading publicly in that society, we need to pay attention. Why were two midwives named in scripture? And what does that mean? What is in their names that means that would be included today? So a little quick question. Uh, one minute, turn to your neighbours, to your friends online, or text somebody if you're on your own right now. Um, do you know what your name means? If you do, tell your neighbour what your name means. If you don't, you've got literally 45 seconds to Google it. What does your name mean? Have a chat. Tell your neighbour. There are parents sitting here going, oh gosh, I actually don't know what I, I don't, I just liked your name, I've never actually looked at it, sorry sweetheart. There are other people that have just found out their name meaning and they're not impressed. <laughs> It'll mean something like, do you know, like my friend was like horse, you know, something like that and you're like, oh, that's not like ideal, but okay. So bring it back in. So name meanings are significant. And um, so I thought, I got a bit curious around the name meanings of the midwives. Since they get named, since they're women who have kind of obscure jobs compared to pharaohs and things, what do their names mean? So Shifra's name means to be pleasing, harmonious. It's calm, it's peaceful, it's composed. What a lovely name. And Puya's name means to shine and to be beautiful. Remember those things. I don't think it's by accident that they're named in the Bible. So, okay, picture this story again in Exodus 1. 
the Pharaoh um, is acting like God, okay? He believes he is God. The people treat him like a God. And he's getting nervous because although he's oppressed an entire people group, the Hebrew people, the people of God, um, he's seeing that they're actually getting, they could outnumber the Egyptians. And so in, in his insecurity, he decides to actually suppress the very people that are building his kingdom, building his empire. He decides to, to basically order a genocide of the male babies, the ones that actually do the work to build his palaces, to build his idols, to build his empire. He's willing to basically cut his nose off to spite his face. So insecure is he about the people of God rising up that he orders, he orders that all the baby boys they're not allowed to live. And he does this to, we actually assume the midwives are probably the head of like the midwife group for the Hebrews. So he basically calls in the bosses and says, um, do this, Mur murder your own people. But he believes he can say that because he's God, right? So he gives that order. And would you believe that the midwives, gosh, they're just so amicable. They're so lovely. They're so calm and pleasing and harmonious. Of all the leaders of the midwives, the most beautiful, calm, people-pleasing ones are in front of Pharaoh. There is no way Shifra and Pua won't do this. There's no way. Because they're calm, they're peaceful, they're beautiful, they shine. So Pharaoh gives this horrendous order, and of course they go away very obediently because they're beautiful, they're harmonious, they're calm, they keep the peace. And then you get that absolutely key line that changes the whole narrative. Verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God and they didn't do what the king of Egypt told them to do. They let the boys live. This is what I find interesting about their names. When you read that they're just beautiful and calm and harmonious and keeping the peace, Pharaoh thinks, we're fine. I'll say it, they'll do it. That is how it works because I'm in control and you work for me. But these women, they were pleasing and beautiful and they shone. But in worship to God... Not any false god. Not any person on earth that would speak death and seek to steal, kill and destroy. These women were pleasing, but not in the way that Pharaoh expected. They completely disrupted the entire narrative. And the courage they showed in their everyday job to do the opposite of what the person that literally is the, the fate of their people is being oppressed by this person. And they consistently undermine evil by fearing God, not man, fearing God, not man, fearing God, not man. And they bring life and they bring life and they bring life and they bring life over and over and over again. Yes, the midwives are pleasing and beautiful and they shine, but their names were in worship to God, never to man. What extraordinary women. No wonder they get mentioned at the start of scripture. What an incredible calling. These two midwives in scripture actually remind me of two student midwives that I met a few years ago. And when I found out what their jobs were, I was like, oh my gosh, talk to me about being a Christian and helping deliver babies. Like, gosh, that must be quite a holy, sacred, amazing scene, really. And one of the students, how she described her job basically reminded me of these women. Because she said, um, when I lay hands on that baby, and sometimes I'm the first person earthside to touch that child... Um, I speak blessing and I speak the promises of God over every life that I help deliver. And she said, if the parents um, are comfortable with it, I'll actually pray out loud. 
And if that isn't the situation, I will just, in my head, speak blessing so that every life on my watch that comes out knows they are destined by God, they are promised and saved. Isn't that stunning? Isn't that stunning? It, it just, it, it makes me so thankful for any Christian in any profession who just knows to speak life, who knows to fear God, not people. It just makes me think of the NHS just saturated with people that know about the holiness of God and his presence because you speak promise where there is death. You speak promise where there is life. You speak promise where there is disease. And these students were like, oh, we've got the best job in the world because we literally speak destiny into being as they come into the world. And I thought, thank you, God. That, that is what happens when you fear God in the ordinary, courageous, extraordinary, everyday lives that we live. Stunning. What if we were like the midwives? What if we took our workplace and just went, it's worship? What if we took our everyday um, jobs that we literally, we, we're called to do and went, well, what if the promise of God was here? And what if we feared God, not man? So that when those culture clashes come and you go, that tastes like death, that tastes like, that might steal joy, that might, that doesn't taste like the kingdom. We go, I won't fear. I won't fear the judgment of the world. Not when I've got my eyes on the king. I won't fear this false God. I'll worship the one who I know is God, who calls me by name, who invites me into costly obedience, but doesn't invite me alone. He is with me. He is for me. Be like the midwives. They fear God. And so they let a generation live. Exodus 1 ends like this. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Remember that line, because it's going to come back to us in Exodus 2. Exodus 2. Let me read on this bit of the narrative. We've already seen two women change the destiny of the people of God. But what happens next gets even more extraordinary. Starting at verse 1. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it, put it among the reeds and the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slaves to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, oh, should I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse him for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby, nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Now, there's loads of story in just these few verses. But again, I want us to notice a few people that don't get as much airtime later on. Firstly, Moses' mum. She doesn't even get named. Neither of Moses' parents do, which is interesting because you're like, when you see what she does, you realise how significant she is to the people of God continuing their story. Just like the midwives, Moses' mum feared God, not man. And so she didn't do what the whole nation was required to do. She didn't cast her baby into the water, which was literally what they were forcing them to do. 
She protected Moses' life. But there's something that I found in, in this Exodus chapter 2 that when I discovered it, and it will be in your Bibles and the footnotes as well, it's a real reason to read footnotes. It blew my mind, okay? This is what it says in verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds on the bank of the Nile. If you check your footnotes or the Bible on your phone, you will see that the footnote next to basket reads, the Hebrew for the word basket also means ark, as in Genesis chapter 6. This is cool, right? This is really cool. Moses' mum took an everyday, ordinary thing, a basket, and she created it into a means of salvation, an ark. The only other time in the Bible that exact word is used, basket, ark, the only other time is with our homeboy Noah in Genesis. You know, the animals came in two by two, hurrah, hurrah, that fella. It's stunning. In Genesis, we read... Well, actually, you've got it on the screen. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become. All the people had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm going to destroy, destroy both them and the earth. Make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Cypress wood. Make rooms in it, coat it with pitch inside and out. The two times in the Bible that you read about an ark being created to save is Genesis and for Moses, for Moses' mum. So here's my question. What have we got in our hands? Our ordinary, everyday lives, friendships, calling, jobs, children, communities. How might they be places of salvation? How might they become arcs, places of rest, places where you can navigate the world and not be in danger. Moses' mum took an everyday basket and she turned it into a saving vessel. Moses' mum was creative and courageous in order to save the next generation. And this is another thing. Do you notice in the story? The Nile, Pharaoh said, was the place of drowning, the place of death. Moses' mum puts her baby on the same Nile, on the same waters to live. Are you starting to hear where the gospel is just laced throughout this story? The place of death became the place of salvation. Moses' mum took what was meant for her son's destruction and turned it into his means of grace. Are you hearing Jesus here yet? Jesus was born with a death sentence just like Moses. Jesus was born at a time when Herod thought the Messiah, the king of all Israel was coming and was going to overthrow him. So he also commanded the same thing, a genocide of the baby boys. And Jesus, again, overcame. He was not killed when he should have been killed because that death warrant was not for him. But when Jesus later was murdered, when that death sentence did happen, what did he do with the narrative of death upon his life? He turned it inside out. He turned it as a means to salvation. He said, then death will be destroyed. I will overcome. This death sentence will be for nobody because I will conquer death. I will take what was meant to destroy and it will become an ark of salvation for all people. Do you see the Gospels here? Do you see how Jesus is waving at us through this ancient scripture? And we all have rivers. We all have moments in front of us that feel overwhelming, 
that feel like they would destroy us, that they would tear us apart, that they would disunify, that they would discourage. We have overwhelming waters in front of us, whether that be debt, whether that be relational issues, whether that be health struggles. And I guess my question is, God, would you help me be like Moses' mum? And what was meant for my destruction, what feels overwhelming waters, becomes a place of salvation, healing, redemption, as I trust you out on the water, that they do not overwhelm, but the God who walks on water meets us in those arcs of salvation and changes the story. And then finally, we meet Miriam. And there's not a lot to say about her. She'll get loads of stuff later on. But there's a couple of things I want to notice about unnamed Miriam right at the start. Um, Miriam watches over her little brother. And she basically is the one that joins the dots up in the story of God because she sees the picture that's being provided for in front of her. Miriam doesn't create the miracle. Miriam doesn't make all this stuff happen with Pharaoh's daughter adopting her brother and then her mom can then nurse him still. And, but she sees what the Holy Spirit is doing. She sees what God is doing and she names it and she steps into it and she basically just gets to help create the picture that the creator has already made. What a privilege. Because we don't do the saving. We're not the Messiah. But the invitation of God is, do you have eyes to see what I'm doing in the world? Will you name it? Will you join in with it? Will you name it for the next generation? Will you watch over those ones younger than you, more vulnerable than you, like Moses? Those that need a helping hand out on the waters, will you be a Miriam and oversee this next generation and help them spot the destiny of God that is in front of them? But they need older siblings. We need family to be those Miriams that join those pieces together. And who's your Miriam? Who are your elders in the faith that oversee how you're doing, that help you reach that destiny with God, that help you become all that you were made to be, that help you navigate waters that could taste like death, and yet Jesus says, I've come to bring life, and life in all its fullness. Do you see how this intergenerational thing plays out? We need one another. We need to both be a Miriam and receive Miriam guidance, just like in this story. You'll also be pleased to know the name Miriam is very significant. It means sea of bitterness. So thanks, Mum and Dad. <laughs> it's funny how that works, isn't it? Can you see how, like, as much as I could have majored on the Exodus narrative and the freeing of the people and the walking across the water, it's the anonymous characters. It's these women who are faithful, courageous, and just keep going with fearing God, not man. It's them that I want us to notice in Exodus 1 and 2 because that means it's us in our workplace. It's us with other generations side by side. It's us as parents and godparents. It's us as friends and family. We can find ourselves in these early stories and that shapes the destiny of the people of God. And yet it's in those everyday moments when we fear God, not man. Let's just take a moment to pray, to respond, to let that settle in our hearts. Perhaps wherever you're tuning in today and if you're here and able to stand, why don't we just stand for a moment together and just wait. Just invite the spirit who speaks throughout this story to speak to us about that courage and that fear of God. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to make us aware of his presence now. King Jesus, you are already here because we gather in your name. 
Spirit of the living God, would you wake us up to the reality of your presence in this room, in our hearts? King Jesus, you are all over this story. You're not yet named, and yet we see the fingerprints of God's salvation story written across these pages next to us. God, we ask that you would give us that vision and faith of the midwives to see the story of God at work and to do the courageous right thing, to say yes to fearing God, not man. May we be bringers of life, speakers of life, arcs of salvation. May we carry the presence of God into our workplaces like the midwives, into our families like Miriam's mum, and like the intergenerational relationships we are called to. May, like Miriam, we, we bring that story of salvation to those around us. Holy Spirit, what's the river? What feels overwhelming like those waters? Where does life actually taste like death in some parts of our story right now? We hold that tension. Moses' mum was in front of the Nile that was a means of death for her people. And that was a reality. Spirit of God, would you speak to us about what life looks like out on that same water? Jesus, where are you moving? Where are you promising your presence in the midst of what would seem to be destroying us, stealing our joy, overwhelming us? Jesus, would you speak a better word? a word of salvation, an ark of salvation upon those waters. Because they're real, but God is bigger. We don't fear the water, we fear God. We don't fear the Nile, we fear God. We don't fear false gods, we fear the good God, whom we can trust. Thank you that you move across generations, Lord. Thank you that you consistently bless across generations, even in the secret spaces of women, undermining the whole story for the glory of God. May we join in with that story even now. In Jesus' name, amen.